Good morning, everyone. You are listening to Studying Pixels, a podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan Heinrich Simond, a game studies scholar from Germany. I'm Dan Hughes, a Japanese scholar from Texas. And you can find us every Sunday on studyingpixels.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Up top, I've got some important tips for email writing. I don't know why it crossed my mind to put it in here to the show. It's nothing to do with video games. But I realized over the last couple of months that there are still quite some people, and maybe you, dear listener out there, are one of them, that struggle with proper email communication. Mm. I say this with no ill will. I don't mean that it's a dumb thing. I mean, email is a very specific form of communicating, kind of like a letter, but also totally not like a letter because it's so instantaneous. And I've got some important tips, especially when you want to email people in a professional context. For example, emailing your lecturer <laughs> or a colleague or another department, whatever. One important rule that I always try to follow is the BLUF, the bluff method, which is bottom line up front. I think this it comes from the military, actually. The idea is that in, instead of just putting, uh, like sometimes you get an email where there's a whole lot of context, a whole lot of elaboration. Yeah. And at best, then the actual point, the actual query is at the bottom, or it's even somewhere in the middle there. And you just need to read through that entire email in order to figure out what that person wants. Yeah, that's the thing is email, <laughs> email should be quick. So be, be to the point as quickly as you can, because I can tell you right now, the most I'm going to read in, a, in an email, if I have 15 of them, is probably the first two sentences. And those should exactly contain your query. It might sometimes sound a little bit rude if you just start an email by dear so-and-so, can I do this and this and this? for example, but it will help me. Afterwards, you can still go on and elaborate when it comes to context and still tell me more about the thought behind your, your query or your concern. But if I know exactly what you want, it will help me respond quickly to that email. The second tip is use names and dates in your subject line, or at least in the beginning of the email. The reason for this is, well, you might sometimes think, it's okay. People know by context what kind of person I'm talking about or what kind of date this will be like next Thursday, for example, meeting next Thursday. But if you ever want to go back in your emails, you might want to search for specific emails where you thought some information was buried, maybe months or years later. It's good if you use exact dates so that it's optimized for your own internal email search. Mm. Here's another one for students. If you are a student, then you're well advised to put your student ID, your program, and potentially even the year that you started studying into the signature of your email, of your email app, right? So that it's automatically attached because how many times it has happened that I get a query from a student, but I can only answer if there's a student ID. So I need to email them back and be like, hey, what's his name? It causes unnecessary communication. Just put it in your signature so it will automatically be there. It also just, it makes it easier for, for communicating where even I, in uh, like college, I know that everybody has their own student email. So, okay, it's, it's 
doable to figure out who emailed you, but some of them are so esoteric that it's just easier to say like, who is this person <laughs> who's emailing yeah. me? Yeah. Some people don't even put their full name into an email. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's just like, oh, <laughs> I can't help you if I can't look into your file, basically. <laughs> it reduces workload. And the last tip that I can give is that learn to differentiate between CC and BCC. So this is carbon copy and blind carbon copy. A mm. little bit of analog terminology here. <laughs> but the good thing about it is that with CC, you basically include other people in the conversation with everyone. And BCC is if you want to email someone and not show them all the other people involved in that conversation. So if you send an email to a whole bunch of people and they don't need to be in a group conversation, mm. then you might want to email them with BCC. Otherwise, you have like, then there are always some people who just click reply to all. <laughs> You're like involved in these elaborate conversations of like 40 people are emailing each other, unnecessarily pinging everyone in that list. That happened to me once with uh, someone who, I don't know, I don't know why he did this, but he BCC'd me on an email. It must have been a mistake because I got, I got a long chain of emails afterwards that I was not supposed to be reading. And all I could think was, uh, I emailed him separately and I just said, I don't know if you meant to BCC me on this, but um, maybe you want to take me off. <laughs> <laughs> I've been reading your internal documents and yeah. communication for half a year. <laughs> so you might want to check who you're adding on these emails. These are some important emailing tips. Take them to heart and it will make your email communications on a day-to-day basis a lot more enjoyable and maybe even a lot less labor intensive. Now, talking about labor, we're obviously trying our very best to make this show interesting and fun for you every week. And if you want to support us in doing so, then you can subscribe to Studying Pixels Plus. That is basically our patron membership. It will get you our show, our weekly episodes ad-free. It will get you a lovely sticker that says, I am studying pixels and a monthly plus episode. This month, in March 2022, our Plus episode is on the rise and fall of Visceral Games. That is the studio that made Dead Space. A very tragic story, and we go into the details of from their emergence up to their downfall. What happened? What happened to make the studio great, unique in some ways, and what brought it down? It's always interesting to do kind of a uh, I hesitate to say eulogy because that's a little too negative, but it is kind of a eulogy for visceral games. A lamentation. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> of course, you should also keep in mind that if you subscribe to Studying Pixels Plus in March 2022, we will donate the entirety of the pledges that we get in March 2022 to Red Cross Ukraine because this war must stop. And we want to do our very best to contribute in order to help civilians affected by this. If you're curious, then go to studyingpixels.com slash plus to find out more. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Our main story today is about spiritual experiences in video games. Have you ever made a spiritual experience while playing a video game? Well, I suppose it largely depends on how you interpret it. Spirituality is, after all, a pretty elusive term. It is hard to grasp, especially in academic contexts. And we are going to take a deep dive into that. And that is why we are now joined by Dr. Felix Schnitz. He's the director and co-founder of the Game Studies and Engineering Program at Klagenfurt University in Austria. His dissertation on the experiential nature of video games is currently in print and he's also working on an anthology on spiritual practices in interactive fiction. I'm very glad that he joins us now. Hi, Felix. Hi, Stefan. Fancy meeting you. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. But, you know, when someone researches a subject like spiritual experiences in video games, then the first direction that my mind goes to is there must be some kind of experience, some kind of personal experience there while playing a video game that triggered this kind of particular interest in this a somewhat niche subject, I would say. Do you have, did you have like a point of origin where you said this is a spiritual experience and this is something that I'm really curious about? Of course, there is something like that. I mean, you, you can't really deal with a topic like a, a very intimate and personal experience without actually having some kind of encouragement to discuss what's going on within you. And um, for me, that moment was when I was playing Everybody's Gone to the Rapture, wonderful walking simulator game uh, from the Chinese Room Development Studio. And uh, it's a game dealing with the end of the world, but in a very calm and serene way. So something that you wouldn't expect really when talking about an apocalyptic game. And what's working marvelously in Everybody's Gone to the Rapture is the idea of feeling a, a certain connectedness. Um, should I describe the game briefly? Would you be interested or should I just talk about my, my sentiments here? Definitely. I mean, in whatever way it is important since I've played it as well and I very much remember my first thought when you say spirituality in the context of everybody's gone to the rapture is I think back to how the characters are, they all disappeared in this small English village, right? And you can hear their voices and see some some visual manifestations of their souls, maybe. I'm going to say that in quotation marks. And there's beautiful, as you said, serene soundtrack that emphasizes these moments. And my goodness, I can very much relate to the sensation of this being kind of a spiritual experience. Uh, from the beginning on, quite yes. Also because of that absolutely gorgeous soundtrack. So even if you're not a big gamer, the soundtrack is something you should listen to, definitely. And these, these um, you know, ex ex excerpts of the soul, we could call them, that you mentioned, these little 
vignettes that we are allowed to see as we uh, wander the village grounds, that's actually what's being mostly responsible for that spiritual experience that I had. Because um, these fragments are excerpts of uh, life's past. So you basically see what people in the village did before the apocalypse struck, uh, weeks before that, days before that, but also just hours before that. And the thing is that you see several stories of people who are somewhat interconnected, but not fully. As it is, you know, living in a rural community, you, you are a part of something, but you also have your own personal tragedies, your personal uh, feelings, thoughts that you're not sharing with everybody. And so when you only see individual bits and pieces, you might think that, you know, these, these people were having severe worries, that there is something that they wished uh, to be resolved, but they couldn't resolve it anymore in their lifetime. But since we are in that game from a kind of an outsider's perspective, after everything happened, after the apocalypse, we are able to see the entirety, to see the whole. And in the end, we, we see the, you know, even things worked out when people didn't even realize anymore, weren't able to realize anymore that they worked out well. And uh, the, the phenomenon responsible for the apocalypse and everybody's gone to the rapture is the so-called pattern, which in the game we just see in the shape of glowing orbs, of, of light reflections. And in the end, we can see that everything's kind of merging together in that pattern, which is just something bigger that we as human beings are. And everything, once it fits into the pattern, is just one part of a big glowing whole. And there's a feeling of harmony, of unison going on in there, of everything finding resolution, but only on a transcendental level, not on a a, a level of earthly connection, of, of, of talk, of... Uh, good old-fashioned quest resolution, as you might have it in, in role-playing <laughs> games, for example. Um, that's what we have in there. And uh, since you were talking about spiritual experiences, something you know that even got me to put more research into this, actually, before I even played a lot of, of games that I would later on consider to be spiritual, there's one moment that actually had a huge impact on me uh, when I was spending time together with an old friend from university. I was visiting her in Leipzig, and I was just about to start my PhD uh, thesis, which, you know... Um, focuses on all kinds of inner experiences, on, on private experiences, among them the spiritual experience. And I was pretty curious about her on, on that particular day because she is a rather religious person. Mm. And I mean, of course, there's a differentiation to be made between spirituality and religion. Maybe we can get to that at a later point. But, you know, we were just standing there in, in this little park in Leipzig, and it wasn't even that early in the morning, so it wasn't one of these, like, you know, sublime sunrise moments that we might imagine as a cliché. But we were just standing there and I was asking her, um, how do you know that you're a spiritual person? Just mm. randomly out of the blue, because right in that moment, I was curious about it. And she was looking at me and smiling and just saying, Felix, why don't you just have a look around and see for yourself? Can you look at that and not be a spiritual person? And I was looking around and there was nothing extraordinary about that moment. You could say there were people, you know, doing their morning jog. There was a bit of a commute that you could see in the background, the buildings, of course. Uh, the green of the park, the trees in the park, and that was about it. And I was looking at that, and of course, I, I wasn't in her head at that moment, which is also something that really intrigues me about a spiritual experience, that it is something that intimate and private. Mm -hmm. But even without fully understanding what she's feeling at the moment, I was like, yep. It is It is interesting, isn't it? Because in in the field of religious studies especially, you run into words like, ineffable or, you know, effervescent or all these kind of vague words where it's sort of gesturing towards something greater. But there there are these moments, 
as you're describing, where I think you can you can really put pen to paper and say there was something about this experience, this connection, this um, question that we were both kenning towards that I think we would define as spiritual. And so it's really interesting to me that. I mean, when I think about situations like that, like that beautiful moment that you just described with your friend, I think about all of my gaming experience, and I think I definitely have had some spiritual experiences with video games. There's there's many of those hidden in, in many games, we could say. And by hidden, I basically mean that it's not like video games are pushing these kinds of experiences on us. Of course, mm. there are frameworks which just make them more likely, I suggest, narratives that we experience in the shape of a parable, for example, or in the sense of a, a pilgrimage as we do in Journey. But at the same time, it needs the player to be open to these kinds of experiences. You, we, we always experience that's basically a constant state of the human condition, but we have to open ourselves to wanting to make these more uh, impactful experiences at the same time. And as you were describing it correctly, Dan, in a sense, there's always this wakeness to spirituality mm. when we talk about it. And this is what makes research about it so relevant and interesting, I think, because it's, it's actually one of the biggest issues that we have running claims going on in research on spirituality that we cannot really research spirituality because <laughs> it is such an intimate and private phenomenon. And even if we try to describe it to other people, it's not really communicable on a intersubjective level because there's things that I feel inside that might make me shudder, that might leave me in awe. And they might be extremely special and important to me, but it wouldn't be the same thing to the person standing next to me or the person mm. watching me playing a video game at a certain moment. But at the same time, uh, since apparently you also had similar experiences in video games, I assume the way you describe it, uh, we cannot deny that these phenomena exist. It's a part of, of human consciousness, of the human psyche, however you want to frame it, but it's there. Mm. And the fact that we don't really have the words to properly describe it doesn't mean we shouldn't put our research efforts into it. Yeah, Absolutely. and in this sense, spirituality is maybe even not that exceptional when it comes to being, well, exceptional, since we've got <laughs> such phenomena like love, for example, that we also research and that we describe and that we try to grasp in various different theoretical frameworks. So why not give it a shot with spirituality? Though I find it important that you said there is a distinction that we need to consider between spirituality on the one hand and religion on the other, because it's easy to conflate the two. Yet mm. in my layman's understanding, I would distinguish between these, and please correct me, Felix, if I am wrong, by saying that religion seems to me like a very uh, clear and somewhat prescriptive uh, framework of, um, you know, like rituals and um, hierarchies and structures to believe in, whether it might be a monotheistic religion that goes aims towards one god or several gods or whatever. Whereas spiritualism seems to be more of an abstract nature, as in there is something beyond the comprehensible. And I don't, I can't explain it. Maybe I don't even want to or need to explain it, but it's there because I feel it. Is that how you can differentiate between these two phenomena? That's exactly it, actually. Marvelous description here. Thank you very much for that. Um, <laughs> we can definitely say that spirituality and religion go hand in hand to a certain degree. Because spirituality, you know, if we describe it in the broadest framework imaginable, we could say is the human need or want for a, a understanding, a, a, a longing for something that takes place on a transgender, transgender level, excuse me, um, that is um, not really 
explainable by rational means. It's something that is out of the grasp of reality, so to speak. And we do have ways in which we try to approach these sentiments. And these quite often come in shape of religion, religious communities, institutions, practices, uh, which are definitely helpful for us if we aim to explore these feelings. But one thing that is actually important for me to mention, and that was also important for me in my research, is that with spirituality, we are definitely speaking about that abstract, broader framework that you've been mentioning here that's going even beyond religion. Because these, these questions or longings for understanding ourselves as mortal beings in contrast to the infinity of the universe, of understanding what's potentially coming before us as human beings in entirety or after us, where are we coming from, where are we headed to? You know, these are very general questions and not just questions that, that I would connect to a religious person per se, but to a spiritual person. So, mm. you know, even an atheist, for example, might wonder sometimes, uh, where is, where, where are we as human beings coming from? Where is life on earth coming from? The Big Bang theory, uh, questions about life outside of, of earth, outside of our universe. These are all large questions about how the entirety of the universe functions in general. And even as a non-religious person, I can ask these questions and wonder about them. And maybe they leave me with that shudder or, or shock or moment of awe that has me reflecting about my own identity and about my own state of being. Mm. Yet, if I, I come back to the example of everybody's gone to the rapture, I there's something that I struggle with in that context because I do understand that everybody's gone to the rapture is a game that is to a certain degree also about spirituality, right? And it makes a spiritual point in its text. But isn't that profoundly different from making a spiritual experience while playing a game? So a game about a spiritual experience or talking about addressing spirituality, isn't that a different thing than making a spiritual experience while playing a game? There's, of course, a difference attached to that. And then this is the and, and the uh, absolutely interesting thing when putting research into it. Because um, what we can definitely say about video games nowadays is that they offer virtual spaces in which we as human beings can explore things, let's call it on a very broad level. We can explore the virtual geography of the video game. But in a sense, a video game is also always an experience of the self, of course, because we as players provide input to the machine, we bring our thoughts into the machine, and it provides us with output in the sense of orchestrating some experience first. And we can, on the one hand, see this experience coming from pretty graspable phenomena, may they be graphics, may they be sound effects, may they be the haptics of the controller we're using. But at the same time, it's also about what we as players bring into the video game. And of course, there are these games such as Everybody's Gone to the Rapture that are in their, their framework, in the narrative framework, already closely entangled the spiritual phenomena. But that doesn't mean that we as players are kind of bound to games that force spirituality onto us. But it can, of course, also happen in vastly different contexts. Um, let's take Journey in here for an example. Journey is a game that many people would potentially describe as a kind of spiritual experience or as a, a feel-good experience, if you don't want to use the term spirituality here. <laughs> and and there a lot of phenomena in there that we would connect to phenomena that we can also see in real life practices of uh, spiritual practices. Pilgrimage, the journey in the sense of, of wandering to come to some kind of personal conclusion, to come to an achievement that you cannot really describe to other people, that, that you feel to yourself. 
the sense of community, even if it's a very small community in Germany, of course. But there is this idea of being there for somebody else, even if you don't know that person, or feeling good because you can rely on somebody taking you on that journey, literally. Mm. So um, there's a broad sphere in which this can take place. And that, of course, um, is partly coming from the orchestration provided by the video game, but also, as, as Dan and I explored earlier, coming from the open-mindedness of us wanting to orchestrate something that is nurturing that inside need that we have about mm. getting in touch with, with our own spiritual dimensions. One of the things that I find most interesting about these kinds of, um, not necessarily the kinds of games that Stefan had mentioned where they're deliberately about uh, uh, religious experience, but games where people may often find themselves, um, I'm sorry, a spiritual experience. Uh, there, there's certain games where people may find themselves saying, I feel I had a spiritual experience playing this game is uh, there's some connective tissue there. Something that you've brought up a few times, Felix, which is they often mimic or are a pilgrimage of some sort. The game may not be about a religious or spiritual pilgrimage. And yet going on this journey with this avatar, with these other characters, you feel this sense that you're exploring some question, or maybe you're finding the question as you're going. And I think one of my early experiences is a game deliberately about a pilgrimage and what it means in terms of religion, but also spiritual questions is Final Fantasy X, this game deliberately about what it means to have these questions kind of thrown back in your face and having these experiences turned on their head. And I think that... Uh, if you're looking for some sort of common element, there is this deep feeling that you get when you're following these people or you're having this journey, not to use the word flippantly, but if you're you're having this journey for yourself where these things just sort of naturally occur to you. Absolutely. Um, I think one of the main reasons for that is actually that there are specific cultural practices uh, in my dissertation, I mostly looked at them in, in Western contexts, for example, but there are means and practices in which we typically engage in order to contemplate. And to contemplate in that sense means to get in touch with yourself and therefore, you know, granting your, your, your soul, but, but also your cognition room and space to, to take a breather and to reflect upon these things. What's of, of importance to you? What's of, of meaning to you? What is the bigger meaning, the transcendental meaning of that journey? If we keep using the term, and if you don't yeah. mind me doing so. <laughs> Maybe and that's why they called it that. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Might be a reason for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. And, the, and that's actually the idea behind it, because going on a journey is one of these cultural practices that we archetypically connect to being alone with our own thoughts, emotions, mm. feelings, sentiments, and to reflect upon them. And we see that in the pilgrimage. We see that in the, the journey that we take alone. We see that in pastoral artworks where it's usually, you know, the lonesome shepherd uh, crossing mm. the landscapes. We see that in even more uh, contemporary practices such as flannerism, where it's the lone wanderer exploring the city and just, you know, taking in what's happening within mm. their surroundings. Uh, it's something that we uh, connect to peripateticism, to the Greek school. Um, and I, I know it's mostly a, a cliche that the philosophers, you know, spend their days wandering around thinking about yeah. things, but it's a cultural image for a reason. It's, there's a reason why this is stuck in our mind of, okay, hey, this is what philosophers do. They walk around when they think about things. Mm. So it's very clear that games such, I mean, journey 
is probably the most iconic example because it's basically an, it's an apotheosis. It's uh, it's about the circle of existence. It is also about community in a sense that going beyond just the two people that are doing this journey, there's there is I would say like a more like an older, more vague, more abstract sense of community of which you can become a part. Because for me, my most impactful spiritual experience was in that very game, in Journey. And it was, of course, it's not a big spoiler that at the ending of the Journey, you basically fly into the sky and it's this very powerful, also like just aesthetically overwhelming experiences with with all its layered music and uh, and the the brightness of the screen and so on. There's several elements that contribute to that. But the true form of spiritual experience that I made thereafter was once I had played through Journey several times, I unlocked a white coat. Like you don't have this normal red cloak anymore that you have when you're a normal traveler, but you sort of become a guide you have superpowers, and I knew where every single piece of uh, collectible was in that game. So I went ahead, and I still continued playing it, walking through it with other players, and I watched them make their own experiences, take their first steps. And if they went, went ahead and they missed something, then I would just stand there for a while and ping them a couple of times. If they didn't want to get it and search for it, that's fine, but I would just sort of guide them a little bit. That was the moment where I realized, wow, this is amazing and it gives me so much when it comes to uh just simply hope hope in existence hope in humanity all of these things right especially in times of personal and emotional peril it was invaluable to me to make that experience and we need these kinds of of anchors and i know on mm -hmm. the one hand i want to call them emotional anchors because it's definitely something that we we, we feel like we needed that calm that serenity but it, in fact, it's much more than just being an emotional anchor. It's about being in a specific state of mind. It's about having a, a mental but also a personal distance from the perils of free life, potentially from dramatic things happening. That's allowing us to uh, see our own problems potentially as being much more insignificant than they actually are. And also about paying close attention to positive things happening around us, to, to hope to uh, that helpfulness that we can express in a game like Journey towards other players. And also in a broader sense, it's the spiritual experience, because you mentioned returning to the game quite often here. Uh, it's the spiritual experience of seeing yourself as a, a finite part of something infinite. This is actually mm -hmm. you know, one of the age-old descriptions that we encounter again and again and again when we discuss spiritual experiences. It's the juxtaposition of human mortality versus the infinite of the divine, if we want to call it that way, or of the transcendental or of the universe. And that's something that we have in, in games like Journey, but also something that we, um, especially in recent times, actually, we see more and more games approaching in a specific way. And I, I noticed that in your podcast, you also had a session on time loops, for example. Yes. yes. And yeah. games that deal with time loops, they actually you know, tackle the same issues, although in a different fashion. Uh, Returnal, for example, uh, last year's game is one of the great examples for that because it's also a game about uh, returning, as the title implies, <laughs> kind of, uh, to that alien planet on which you are again and again and again. And even though you manage to play through the game, everything that happens is that you have a brief flashback sequence and you wake back up at the beginning to try again and again and again, juxtaposing uh, your own journey against something that's there infinitely. Yeah. 
I think that one of the things that you, so you've both kind of touched on this now, because um, when uh, my my study was, uh, you, you mentioned, Felix, that you look at sort of Western practice. I was on the Eastern side of things. And I think that um, when it comes to, the reason I think I still think about video games so much when I think about uh, spirituality and, and religious studies and all these things is that there is a sense that once you've had that journey, once you've gone through the game, um, if you do it enough times, the the white cloak is really an interesting symbol because it feels a lot like you've almost transcended into this sort of bodhisattva level um, consciousness where you say, I understand the things that you are about to experience and I want to help guide you through those experiences. And a game like Returnal is a really great example of a character, but then also the player interacting with it, kind of coming to terms with their own trauma and dealing with this horrible event in their past by experiencing it over and over and over again until you get to the end, which is, it's not like you've undone that event. It's just that you understand it. And there's something in that understanding, I think, that games, as you mentioned more and more nowadays, I, I think are trying to they're they're trying to express that more and more. Like you mentioned Death Stranding um, early in our conversation. And I feel like I haven't dug too deeply into Death Stranding because really I want to give it the time of day. I want to really engage with it. But I I get the sense that that was a game that was um at its 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 reaction completely mirrors its point, where the audience reaction to it was, this is boring, I don't understand this, this is frustrating. And as time has gone on, it seems that people have said, oh, wait, I think that might have been the point. And I think I'm beginning to understand it and becoming more connected with other people who had that same experience I did. Absolutely. That's where the journey comes into again. It's a, a bothersome journey. It's a difficult journey. It's a challenge to the player. But in the end, this is what it's all about. And that you still keep on keeping on, as they say, <laughs> in the training, actually in order to make some sort of progress. And even though you may not be completely sure what that progress means on that transcendental level, um, mm. let's be honest, we all try to analyze Death Stranding here. Uh, many of us failed. I'm still failing at it terribly, <laughs> even though I, I think I have a better understanding of it by now. But that might be also part of the entire point of it. There are big questions mm. that we just won't get an answer to. But still, we have to keep on trying to get that answer, even if it's just a very personal, intimate, subjective answer that helps us to keep pushing in that specific moment. And what's adding to the journey in uh, Death Stranding, actually, is that intriguing idea of it being a asynchronous multiplayer game, in a sense, right. because you are on the journey all by yourself, but at the same time, other people have the same journey all by themselves, and still your ways are interconnected, literally, because you can see where other people have been threading. Uh, you can leave messages to other players. You can pick up parcels that they left and kind of deliver them to where they're supposed to go. And this is also belonging to that grand idea of feeling interconnected to something, even if there are no real ways for us to be in connection in that game, which then mm -hmm. again flows quite well with uh, the entire narrative framework of Death Stranding, where we're stuck in a uh, super duper post-apocalyptic idea of the future where human connections aren't just possible in a way that feels normal to us anymore. And still there's the deep longing that all the characters that the entire uh, dramatis personae has in that game that kind of has them in that that uh, interconnectedness where they all want to be part of something 
and mm. everybody finding their own means of being so. So we describe spiritual experiences as something very reassuring, very positive. It can also be an irritation to one's own experiences, surely. But overall, it seems to me that aren't we getting very close to just simply describing that video games are an excellent mean of, means of escapism and that spirituality is just part of that need to escape the dreariness of reality? It's an interesting question, um, especially because we have to figure out what we actually want to express by saying escapism here. Uh, escapism, mm. of course, is a retreat from reality. And so that's one of the, the cliches that all of us have dealt with in our career of being avid video gamers as a kid. Hey, uh, don't get lost in there. Hey, um, real world to Felix, what are you playing right now? Because yeah, we, find we your get way so back in. out of the Mushroom Kingdom. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Along those lines, exactly. Yeah, being uh, immersed in a virtual world. But escapism in that sense is not just, you know, about escaping the perils of real life potentially, but escapism is then also potentially a way of, of um, excluding the real life so that we can focus on the inner sphere again. Um, I, I really would love to connect this thought once more to the idea of playing through yourself when playing a video game, of having a self-experience when playing a video game, that, which is also some kind of escapism, of course. And that then can be a positive one, it can be a negative one, uh, it can be a negative one turning into a positive one, as I would dare argue it's the case with Returnal, because it's, of course, a dreadful experience facing trauma again and again and again. But then the ultimate metaphor we could um, decipher from that fact would be that uh, trauma is something that will never fully leave us. Mm. Um, it's, it's always something that will be a part of us, and the only way for us to truly get over it would be to face it again and again and again, as paradoxical as it seems. And then, of course, there's also the, the kind of positive escapism that um, we can, for example, see in a game as, and, 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 and please don't hate me for, for calling it out that way, as ordinary as Animal Crossing is, for example. And <laughs> I don't mean that in a negative sense, by, by far not. But uh, Animal Crossing is a sort <clears throat> of ordinary everyday life experience. You take care of mm -hmm. your garden, of your household, of your island, uh, you just relax at the beach, you go fishing. And in all these things, in all these ordinary actions, there can be something that grants us that relief of being a part of a, a, a system, as it is in the case of the video game. But that system can, of course, also be some kind of, of transcendental um, functionality that we are then all of a sudden a part of. And Again, this is something that we see in so many real-life religious practices from the, the old Christian aura elabora. I mean, of course, there, the hard work would be in focus, but it's still the ordinary action through which we feel closer to God, uh, down to, to Eastern Zen practices of living the very moment that we are into its utmost fullest, irrelevant if we, I don't know, um, are, are at a rock concert or just baking a cake, you know, on a Sunday yeah. afternoon. It can all be the same if we really cherish the moment in which we are in right now. It's interesting well, that you describe these polar opposites uh, because on the I remember that when Animal Crossing came out at the same time, Doom Eternal came out. And there was this <laughs> there was this very weird connection in video game discourse, right? Where just by these games being released, I think even on the same day or in the same week, there were yeah. like mashups and crossover things, uh, any sort of this. And I've been thinking about. Animal Crossing certainly 
gave people something that might relate to a spiritual experience, especially during the pandemic, because they needed the sense of, you know, I'm in law, I'm in the mindset back then. We're on lockdown. We don't know when this will end. This is a very blissful retreat. And Doom Eternal, on the other hand, was kind of like lashing out. It was like a confrontation. It was like to just simply enter into the flow of slaughtering demons to like hardcore metal music playing. And interestingly enough, I played both of them. And I would say that the potential for a spiritual experience in Doom is also there because it gets you into this kind of, well, the flow state in itself is closely related to what we have described as a spiritual experience yeah, so far. A Zen practice and of demon a Zen slaughter. Practice. <laughs> yeah, of demon slaughter. <laughs> and you can run through that game and you shoot, you, you fire your shotgun and then someone comes in and I'm saying like, hey, don't interrupt my game. I'm having a spiritual experience, you know? It's, <laughs> <laughs> I, I struggle with this a little bit still. And at the same time, I find it super fascinating, I must say. <laughs> and, and we shouldn't struggle with it because that's exactly the point. In both cases, it's escapism. But it's not mm. escapism in the sense of we are running away from our problems. But in fact, we're granting ourselves the mental capacity and space uh, to face uh, problems that take place on another level, uh, that take place in a sense that we cannot really grasp by rational means, but that are still things or, or sentiments that we have to deal with and that we want to deal with in order to feel more wholesome, more complete, more all right with ourselves as human beings. I think I think back to, um, because my, my girlfriend was, I didn't play Animal Crossing myself, but I, I got the secondhand experience from her because she was all about it, especially at the beginning of the pandemic. And I was struck by, she would tell me these stories. And I remember one where I think her favorite animal uh, Molly, a duck. She loved her. And she was so just overcome with emotion because she relayed an experience to me where she, all the, the duck said was, I'm so glad you're here. And it's like these little moments where you, you start to realize that's why I'm playing this. I needed to, I needed to realize that being in the moment is okay. Right. Or on the flip side <laughs> with doom eternal, it is something where it's like, you know what? I really feel this displaced anger and rage, and it's nice to place it somewhere and work through it because I don't know how else to do it right now. And that can be a spiritual experience in my, in my understanding. It's both the positive and the negative. We connect mm. spiritual feelings to the highest moments of joy, but also to, to moments of absolutely deep angst, anger, frustration of not knowing where we are. And in, in both circumstances, it's of utmost importance to face these sentiments from time to time. As you wonderfully put it, it's okay to be in the moment right now. It's okay for me to have this joy right now. That can totally recharge your, your inner batteries. Uh, just as facing these, these issues that we have and also understanding that it's something like a natural occurrence. These negative feelings, these ne negative emotions, they will come back again and again and again. And mm -hmm. it's okay that they're here because they are a part of our human life as all the positive things are. There's no positive without a negative. And in both cases, it's up to us to tackle this and not ignore it. Now, here's my last question for you, Felix. The video game console is a machine and the things that have been created on it have been fumbled together in lots of hours and over time. And I, I'm just going to say, I reject the notion that this can even be a spiritual experience at all. It's kind of like an artificial thing. 
it's not something that's being touched by some kind of entity beyond or that's some kind of beyond comprehensible it's just pixels you know what you know what i'm gearing at the i i want to i would like to hear your comment on a position that simply flat out just says this we can describe it as emotional as intense even sometimes as a psychological self inquiry but it has nothing to do with spirituality how do you respond to that claim i respond to that claim by firstly elaborating that a video game first and foremost is potential that's how i mm. tend to treat it a video game is a virtual space of potential and of course what kind of potential is released in that virtual space is fully dependent on us i can absolutely play a video game like journey as a speedrunner if i wish to i can play it just to fool around in the environment ignore everything i can play a video game and fully ignoring the the narrative framework that it has the story that's portrayed in there the aesthetics i can do all that but if i want to unleash a potential that will take me to these higher planes of thinking uh to these sentiments of where do i belong to what are the biggest questions and concerns that i'm facing at the moment who am i who do i want to be is it all right to live in the moment then a video game can absolutely grant me maybe not an answer to that because getting an answer to a spiritual question that's something that i leave to others absolutely but it's <laughs> something that's making us aware of the fact that it's okay to have these questions and that it's okay for us to contemplate and and consider these issues so um if i want to deny a spiritual experience i can absolutely do so but i can also absolutely cherish it and live through it and of course i can live through it in the virtual geography that a video game provides me with thank you very much for the conversation felix thank you very much stefan dan it's been an utmost pleasure being here with you guys uh it's been great talking about spirituality in such an academic context i i really was looking forward to that and if you guys are interested and if if you uh dear listener the audience if if you're interested uh i'm currently working on an anthology on spiritual on fictional practices of spirituality in interactive fiction uh planned date of publication is sometime in november but if you guys don't mind i would actually just forward the info to you again once it's released and maybe there's some goodies in there for your audience as well oh gladly so we'll just put it in our side quests when when the book comes out we're looking forward to it thanks again and then dan and me we're going to move on and do some side questing awesome thank you hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when i asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts they said what the f- are you talking about you insane hollywood ass So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for a limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As you know, in our side quests, we venture through the internet to bring you stories and articles we find interesting and relevant. We also talk about our own impressions of games and those that we are currently playing. You can definitely rely that you will find all the links that we mention in the show notes. Now, we've got three stories. The first two are going to be about Ukraine, of course, or the conflict. I shouldn't say conflict between Russia and Ukraine. I should say the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Number one, Ukraine's open letter to video game developers. We know that there have been a whole lot of sanctions put into place in order to deter Putin from advancing further and in order to make this invasion basically in any any sense except for the military one a loss for Russia, for the Russian people and for the Russian government. For example, Google, Nike and Apple have, I think all of them within the last week, withdrawn their deliveries to to Russia or stopped the operation of their services. Now, Ukraine's vice prime minister and minister of digital transformation, Mikhailo Fedorov, he calls upon video game developers to do the same. He went to Twitter and he tagged in his tweet specifically Xbox and PlayStation and posted an open letter which reads in its entirety as follows. To all game development com- companies and esports platforms, the Russian Federation has carried out a deceptive and outrageous military attack on my country. Just imagine, in 2022, cruise missiles attack residential neighborhoods, kindergartens, and hospitals in the heart of Europe. The armed forces and citizens are defending Ukraine till the end. The whole world is repelling the aggressor through the imposition of sanctions. The enemy must suffer significant losses, but we need your support. In 2022, modern technology is perhaps the best answer to the tanks, multiple rocket launchers, and missiles. I am sure that you will not only hear, but also do everything to protect Ukraine, Europe, and finally, the entire democratic world from bloody authoritarian aggression. And I appeal to temporarily block all Russian and Belarusian accounts, 
temporarily stop the participation of Russian and Belarusian teams and gamers in all international esports events and cancel all international events holding on the territory of Russia and Belarus. We are sure that such actions will motivate the citizens of Russia to proactively stop the disgraceful military aggression. Yours sincerely, Deputy Prime Minister of Ukraine, Minister Mikhailo Filidov. And that is the full open letter. So it's a call upon video game developers and esports teams to basically cut all ties with Russia. What do you think about this? Do you think, because um, we've seen a lot of a lot of sanctions just in the past few days. And I think that things are only going to continue in that vein towards Russia. Now, I know that um, I did see that uh, EA recently um, seems to have pulled the Russian team from FIFA 2022. Um, so there are certain things are starting to happen. Do you think that that'll continue? Definitely. It will continue as long as there has not been a proper peace agreement. Mm. Uh, we don't know whether that will happen or if it will happen at all, but um, I think it's going to continue in that vein. The first thing that struck me, though, is that this letter does not sound to me like um, a letter that you would receive from the prime minister of a government. <laughs> it, it's, yeah. very it's very casually phrased. At times, he uses exclamation marks and so on. This is not how we Germans would do it, probably, <laughs> when it comes to such an official letter. I, I don't want to, like, you know, uh, like badmouth the way that this letter is phrased. I'm sure that there's a lot of emotion that went into that letter. Mm. It, it's kind of a difficult subject, right? Because on the one hand, I do think that these sanctions are necessary. It's the only way to eventually make this invasion a loss. Even if it might eventually be a military victory, in the long run, it needs to be a loss for Russia and for the Russian government. Of course, first of all, it will hit the Russian people. We don't know how many of these Russian people are actually in support of the war. On the other hand, what are you going to do? You know, you can't introduce sanctions that do not hurt. Not, I mean, sanctions always hurt the, the country that sanctions and the country that is being sanctioned, and especially the civilian population in that country. This is such a, a, a difficult topic to navigate because, as you say, um, the, the Russian people are going to be affected by this. But on the flip side, the Ukrainian people are being heavily affected by what Russia is doing. And so I think that apart from escalating militarily, which I sincerely hope doesn't happen any more than it already has, this is the way to, as you say, sort of make this ultimately a loss. And so for video game companies, I think that it's always tricky when things like this happen in the world because video game companies, we can, we can toss a coin and see how they're going to act morally a lot of the time. But I think that the uplifting part of this is that everyone in the world is in agreement with placing these sanctions and um, cutting back on on this sort of economic relationship with Russia. And so to me, that does seem like more incentive for these video game companies to continue with the way that everyone else is working right now. I mean, it is an indirect handle to the government eventually because mm. you're not going to, it's going to be, I'm not, I'm not going to say it's impossible, but it's hardly possible to convince Putin to change his trajectory. He's clearly playing for domination victory, right? Right, right. And the thing is that in order, there needs to be some kind of handle to penalize that conduct 
and that way of, of governing, which also, by the way, is aimed against uh, the Russian people and the Russian population. These people are sent off to war uh, basically for an, an ideology that they might or might not agree with. And the people in Russia also are subjected to severe propaganda, limitations of free speech. We see that whenever people try to go out on the street and protest against the war, immediately arrested. So it's very hard to express dissensus with the current government if you're in Russia. But maybe it's at least a possibility to say, okay, you live in Russia. Now, you can't buy Apple products anymore. You can't uh, use, I think, uh, like, you can't buy certain certain products, even grocery chains and food chains that said, we're going to stop selling all Russian products. We're not going to import them anymore. It's going to hurt the companies in Russia. And that hopefully there will be such a dissent, such an, such an anger towards the government that brought this on, that basically turned almost all every country on the globe against Russia, that it would lead to an increase in pressure on Putin. Because eventually every dictator, no matter how authoritarian they might be, does require some form of support and foothold within the population, right? I mean, obviously taking away, making food scarcer, making uh, the, I know that the, um, the ruble has gone down significantly. I mean, there's all kinds of everyday, day-to-day issues that are coming up for the Russian people. And then add on top of that, if video game companies come in and say, no more entertainment, <laughs> we're, we're taking these, you know, we're, we're taking these away or we're, we're blocking, uh, you know, X, Y, and Z, then uh, I think you're right. The agitation for the people in Russia might be significant, significant enough to put the pressure on Putin and the government. We must consider that what this also means for the companies. If a company now says, uh, okay, we're going to ban all Russian accounts on our platforms. Mm. Uh, that would mean a huge loss, financial loss for these companies as well. And it would mean we use this kind of lever in order to make a point and in order to say we do not want to cooperate with a country that behaves in such a way. And that's why we're going to basically cut it off. Uh, I, I wouldn't want to speak too clearly on whether this is a good idea or a bad idea. I think um, this is a much bigger discourse than we can have on this show. But yeah, <laughs> I appreciate, though, that a prime minister of a company would basically consider even reaching out to uh, such major video game companies and be like, hey, we need your solidarity right now. <laughs> I, and you said, you know, it's not a it's not a very formal letter, but I think that there's at least in the in the discourse that's been going around about Zelensky and and his cabinet, there seems to be um, this kind of almost ragtag uh, kind of courageous heart feeling that they have. And I I almost think that this is reflective of that, where it's I, I'm putting diplomacy and politics aside and just, you know, asking for your help and doing so in this sort of more informal tweet kind of way. There's something endearing about that. I totally agree. And we've got one more story on the matter of Ukraine that is number two. World of Tanks Studio fires creative director who voiced support for Russia's invasion of Ukraine. This is written by Andy Chalk and published on PCGamer.com. So... Um, we've discussed in previous episodes already 
just to broaden the conversation a little bit, the question of whether it should have professional consequences if someone expresses a, let's say, contested or controversial opinion on their private social media. We can class, or we, if, if this section had a tag, then it would probably be something like the direction of cancel culture is the implication of what we're debating, basically. Mm. And this case affects Sergei Bukatovsky. I hope this is uh, not too inaccurate, my pronunciation is. <laughs> he is, or better, was, the creative director at Wargaming, famous for working on World of Tanks. Now, Wargaming is a Belarusian company, right? So this is a neighboring country to Ukraine, which is strongly under the influence of Russia. And their corporate stance, though, of this company, Wargaming, is very clear to oppose the Russian invasion of Ukraine. They had, as we just discussed in the case of what PlayStation, what Xbox could do, Wargaming had already taken steps because they had temporarily suspended their marketing material that shows advancing tanks and military. It's a military strategy game. Hmm? Mm. And they felt like, they, felt, they said, quote, that they believe it is inappropriate and insensitive to advertise our games while the country, Ukraine, is at the center of this conflict. They also donated one billion US dollars to Red Cross Ukraine. So the company stance is pretty much as clear as it can be. Pretty clear, yeah. Yes. <laughs> they say very clearly, this is terrible. Stop this invasion. However, then comes creative director Sergei Bukatovsky, who takes to his personal Facebook feed and posts that he supports, quote, the operation of the armed forces of the Russian Federation, the DPR and the LPR, end quote. These two abbreviations are the Donetsk People's Republic and the Luhansk People's Republic. Those are basically the two areas in eastern Ukraine, which uh, Russia had long since tried to, uh, well, annex or to get under their control. Mm. Shortly after he posted this, Wargaming released a statement emphasizing that this is the personal opinion of Bukatovsky and that it does not represent the company's stance. And one day later, this all happened this week, by the way, one day later, Bukatovsky, as well as Wargaming, announced officially that he has left the company. They didn't really indicate whether he was let go or whether he quit at his own accord, but he's no longer with Wargaming. To break it down in a very simple fashion, company has a stance on a political matter. Person in a highly in a leading position of that company says something against that stance on his private feed, and that has, in some form, political uh, sorry professional consequences, political consequences as well. What do we make of this? This is a tough one, Stefan, because the last incident that we ran into was actually in our first episode with the. Texas abortion ban. Oh, and, yeah, right. Yeah. And there was a, a pretty high-ranking member of a, of a game developing company who expressed his support and then something similar happened. And that that's a case where, as I understand it, if I remember correctly, the company didn't have a stance. They didn't, they weren't saying we are for or against this Texas abortion ban. The private person came out and said this and we had a discussion about should 
the the consequences be commensurate with your position at the company, right? And that was that was a difficult conversation. This is also difficult, but for different reasons, in my opinion, because first of all, this is a the Texas abortion ban is terrible, but this is a global um, a global issue, and this Ukraine invasion. And I think the key difference here is that the company made such a powerful stance that I wonder if it's not backlash or cancel culture, as we would call it, but more of an internal issue where it's where it's as if the company says, listen, Sergey, we have a very clear position on this for you to go against that as somebody as as such a, you know, a high member of our company that does not look good for us. So whether he was fired or let go, I could see this being more of an internal company conflict than a backlash situation. I totally agree. I think it definitely points to an internal conflict because surely, mm. considering that he's in a leading position at the company, he's a creative director, I can imagine that there was an internal debate what kind of statement they would release. Certainly the employees received the statement before the company did anything. And there was probably also an internal debate whether they would donate and to whom, right? This is similar to how we had an internal debate, albeit a very brief one, of whether we want to donate and to whom. But the thing is that I could imagine that this might have been the point where Burkatovsky himself opposed the company line and then out of frustration of not happy having his position accommodated in the company position then felt compelled to take to facebook he must have been aware at the time when he posted this that this would have consequences if he goes against the company against the company's stance on the other hand i can't help but wonder wouldn't it be sufficient? Wouldn't it be if someone goes against the line in a political position of a company to then release a statement saying this, that's his private opinion? He can do that. He can utter his private opinion on his Facebook. Nobody needs to follow him. Nobody needs to listen to him. And people can can use counter speech and argue against him and leave it at that. Like, does it necessarily need to some be, being so, someone being let go? Or is it maybe just an maybe just a, like a symbolic act that basically it's an affront against the company and like a, a, a sign of being unwilling to cooperate with the company anymore. Very tough. It is tough. And I think if it's down to what the company wants to do, right, then I think that that's kind of, uh, that's kind of a separate issue. But I do agree if it's the case that they had said, okay, well, that's his, that's his private opinion. And it has no bearing on the company opinion, then it may just come down to the fact that being being a person who's vocal enough to express this opinion means that maybe he was, you know, coming at uh, <laughs> coming at odds with people at the company, and he just decided of his own accord, you know what, I I don't want to be a part of this company because we have very differing philosophies on the world. <laughs> So yeah. maybe that was it. Maybe because it's as you said, it's unclear whether he was let go or he quit, right? So who knows? Legally, at least according to the jurisdictions that I'm aware of, uh, it should not be the case. Like you can't fire someone for uttering a political opinion as long as it doesn't stand in violation of the constitution. As far as I'm aware, mm. like it's not a 
a legitimate reason to to fire someone. Of course, you can always find a reason to fire someone if you really want to. Like, you don't need to stick to that. But on the other hand, from looking at this case, it seems far more likely, as you said, that there might have been internal conflict, that he might have been aware what's going to happen. He posts this this his statement, his personal statement, gets called into the office the next day and then says, you know what? I, I want to leave anyway, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. Basically, as we said, I think in our very first episode, it's a means also of burning the bridges uh, and maybe vent frustration as you leave a company. We can't really judge on that matter. But I do think it's an important thing to keep an eye out for as we want to make sure, at least I would want to make sure that people are not in, brought into the position that they can't voice their political opinions anymore on on their private social media feeds. Okay, number three, shall we move on with a little bit more of a gleeful matter? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope it's gleeful. I think um, I've been playing through Elden Ring as much as I can, which uh, as as we get older, uh, that as much as we can time kind of gets uh, compressed a little bit. So I've been thinking this past week, uh, we were joking about how February was so full of games. It was, you know, there was Sifu, Horizon, Elden Ring. Um, Pokemon had come out right before February. And so it was kind of an embarrassment of riches, which is really great. But then on the other hand, for those of us who, you know, are, are have careers and are working for a living and have, uh, you know, relationships and all of this, you kind of feel, or at least I do, sort of a pang of, oh, I wish I had nothing but time to play all these games. And uh, I find myself budgeting uh, for my gameplay, um, especially this past week. And it's one of those one of those moments where I think, you know, I will eventually get to Horizon. I will eventually beat Sifu. Um, but I think that I have to prioritize Elden Ring because it's such a big game and I want to, I want to play through it and be able to talk about it. I hope I have time afterwards to go back to the games I missed before the new games come out. So when you say you budget, then that means you are deliberately making a decision to say, I'm going to focus on Elden Ring now before I go into, or go back to any of these other games. Yes. And especially because it's so, well, here's, okay. So the, the, the topic of this side quest, I called it juggling games. And the reason is because sometimes I think you kind of, you hit the pocket perfectly where there's a couple of games that come out and they work differently. So you don't have to be as invested with your time in certain games as you would others. So I would say Elden Ring and Horizon are two gigantic open world games that I would want to put Indeed. all of my attention into. So it's difficult to juggle those. However, Sifu is a much more fast-paced sort of cinematic game where it's le more level-oriented. So I think, okay, if I have an hour for lunch and you know I, I don't have to do anything during that lunchtime, I might knock out a level in Sifu and see how far I can get. So it's funny to think about time management with video games <laughs> because I definitely want to get to all of them, and it's funny how I slot in time to uh, move forward with them, you know? That competition between Horizon and Elden Ring is very real. Yeah. Uh, partly to an absurd degree. Like, I've seen people on Reddit complaining that others would intentionally downvote Elden Ring because they like Horizon. Or the other way around. 
Like people are really, really filled with spite for the respective <laughs> other game. You know, honestly, just because you like a game, it doesn't mean you need to hate the other. It can yeah. also just not be maybe not before you, or maybe you're going to play it at some time, at some other time. You don't need to hate on that video game. I, I wonder how many how many of those people are feeling that way because they, like me, feel like they don't have enough time. They're like, I want to play both of them, but I have to choose my side <laughs> with the game that I picked. It is yeah. painful. For me, it was kind of naturally resolved because I I'm, I basically, we received a review code for Horizon 2, Forbidden West, uh, by PlayStation. And of course, we're going to do a proper in-depth review. That means one of us has to play through it thoroughly. And that's going to be me. So I basically am working through Horizon at the moment and I'm making good, making good headway. I'm certain I've got very interesting thoughts that I noted down on it that are a little bit more on the analytical side. We're going to get to that, I think, in one or two weeks, probably. It's a long game and I, I don't want to rush through it. I don't want to, you know, just basically skip all the stuff and just run through the next quest marker. Yeah. However, if I was completely free to choose, I think... At this very moment, if you are sitting there out there, you have got both both games in front of you and you wonder which one to start first, I think the right choice at the moment is Elden Ring. Because the thing is that Horizon Forbidden West is more of Horizon. If you've played the first game, then you know exactly what you can expect with a couple of, you know, improvements and so on. And it's, it's a really interesting and I would say very good game. But with Elden Ring, that's kind of the hot topic now where everyone is exploring and all over the place. So that's the thing that you want to jump into right now and afterwards tend to Horizon. I'm going to do it the other way around. That's also going to be fine. Elden Ring's going nowhere soon. No, it'll it'll be around for, I mean, the, the FromSoft games, they have such a shelf life. And this game in particular is not going to be going anywhere from the discourse, I think probably for a year or two would be my guess. It might even get just better over time by getting patched. Who knows? Maybe at some point there will be a nice uh, DLC. I don't know. But at least if I if I start playing Elden Ring in a couple of weeks, let's say in four to five weeks, then I'm definitely going to enjoy it just as much as everyone else does enjoy it right now. Yep. So I think I'll end by saying um, it's <laughs> it's fun to juggle games, I think, uh, depending on what you're playing. And there comes a certain point where you you realize if i have a lot of games that i'm really excited to play i have time later on that's a good problem to have <laughs> because uh, yeah I, I kind of you you kind of get the the fear of missing out um when all these games come out you want to play all of them all at once it's just not doable and luckily they're not going anywhere and you'll still be able to talk about them i still pick up games that are 6 7 years old and get excited about them because i never played them back in the day so stay the course everybody there's plenty of good games out there stay the course and i personally always enjoy it more when i can focus on one game at a time and really dig into it and then at some point i basically emerge from it and then i look into the next one that i'm gonna play <laughs> the cool thing is also as you mentioned having time i'm on vacation at the moment very nice which is wonderful i'm on vacation yes by the time we're recording this episode a little bit earlier on thursday this time normally we record on saturdays but uh by this weekend yeah i'll i'll be traveling actually i'll go to a nice little area within a, a german major city it's called little tokyo it's very exciting 
yeah, the, the, the biggest Japanese population in Europe. That's going to be nice. <laughs> Everyone out there, thank you so very much for listening to this show. If you want to support us, then you can get Studying Pixels Plus. Go ahead and visit studyingpixels.com. If you generally like the vibe of this show, then you know what you can also do? You can just tell a friend about it. If you've got someone who cares about video games or who would love to study video games, then just say, hey, here, this is a cool, interesting podcast. Why don't you give it a listen? And if you want to reach out to us directly, then you can go to studyingpixels.com slash contact. We're looking forward to hear from you and then we'll talk again next week. Bye-bye. See you then. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.